Hello and welcome to the 30-something podcast of Irreligiosity. Here we make up our own numbers and 30-something is uh, right up there. Top of the list. We have got on track, well, you know what? I'm really disappointed, Leighton, because uh, we don't have any new fans. <laughs> and you know what the cause? You know what the cause was? What's that? You said that we had a hundred fans, and so people now are not listening because they think we have all the fans in the world. So that's our lack of re- new reviews is completely your fault. <laughs> I love how everything that goes wrong with the podcast always falls to my shoulders. Finally, you yeah. finally you understand. Yes, yes. Well, you know, I, I do have very broad shoulders, so I guess I can take the brunt of it. Uh, what do we got on tap for today? Well, actually, it's uh, it's kind of interesting what we've got on today. Now, uh, originally we were going to do uh, how the Bible intersects with Egypt, but there's so much information where that's concerned, well, lack thereof, but uh, there's so much we could cover where that's concerned that we've actually decided to take it directly to the Exodus and discuss the Exodus in general and... Just keep us on tap where that's concerned. So basically what we're doing is Exodus Part 2. Yes, yes. The uh, the first Exodus we did back in one of our first podcasts where we talked about all the plagues and how laughable they were. And this time we're going to talk about what happens when they actually leave. Yeah, this, is, um, this event, the Exodus, is the most talked about, most referenced event in the Bible. It is yeah. talked about more often than any other event in the Bible. Oh, very much so. It cracks me up because, uh, I mean, this thing right here is supposed to prove God's power. Well, right. That's why he hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? So he could show everyone how powerful he was. Well, we both know that uh, that God needs people to pay attention to him. So, I mean, this is the perfect way of doing it. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, God uh, kills the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, including the firstborn cows. <laughs> I love that he killed all the firstborn of of their flocks. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, originally God actually killed them twice. He killed all the animals. Uh, well, hold on a second. Let me pull that up directly. So basically what he did was he killed them, he resurrected them, and then he killed them again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, God's able to do something like that. Uh, but yeah, that's exactly right. He actually, uh, I'll even go down and I'll read the exact quote. Um, it's Exodus 9, 3 through 6. Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle, which is in the field, upon the horses, upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, and upon the sheep. Wait. There shall be a very grievous moraine. Hang on a second. The hand of the Lord is upon the asses? Yes, the hand of the Lord is upon the asses, and I'm sure there's a lot of sexual harassment. (laughs) Sounds like a lawsuit to me. (laughs) Well, then, I mean, I love this. And then you, you get to the very last bit, it says... And the Lord did that thing on the morrow, and all the cattle of Egypt died. <laughs> so all of them died, and uh, well, then he killed some with hail later on in Exodus nine nineteen. Well, and then he killed all the firstborn with Exodus twelve twenty nine. So uh, he just kept <laughs> resurrecting these guys and then smiting them down. Again. <laughs> so he killed all the cattle first, and then he killed all the firstborn. No, 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 no. He killed all the cattle. And then he killed a whole bunch more with hail, and then he killed all the firstborn of the cattle. Yeah, that's beautiful. Beautiful. All right, um, so God's kind of a, he's kind of a bully, really. He's um, pushing people around. Pharaoh could have, I mean, it seems like, since it says explicitly in the Old Testament that uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God himself. Yeah. 
specifically to show people how powerful God was. Egypt could have been spared this whole thing. I mean, you wouldn't need you wouldn't need to harden Pharaoh's heart if he, you know, wasn't going to change his mind. So obviously, Pharaoh was about to change his mind. God hardened his heart. He stepped in, hardened his heart, uh, made him all stubborn, and then punished him for it. Yeah. Yeah, this is a God I think I'd like to worship. God's a bitch. What an asshole. <laughs> well, it cracks me up because I'm all right with God doing that once or twice. I mean, it's still an asshole move. But then he does it just over and over and over again. Yeah. It just it just cracks me up. It's like, God, don't you think they've had enough? You know, it reminds... their cattle three different times. You know what it reminds me of? What's that? There's a SpongeBob episode where the king of the sea... Uh, has a, a hamburger-making contest against SpongeBob. Oh, that's one of my favorites. The SpongeBob makes this wonderful hamburger, and the guy eats it, and he says, it's so good, I'm going to eat it again. And he vomits it up, turns it back into a hamburger, and eats it again. <laughs> that's exactly what God did with these uh, cattle. So God was just so intent on showing his power that he would kill everything and then raise it back alive and then kill it again? He was so happy with himself, it felt so good to kill these cattle, that he brought them back and did it again. What the hell did these asses do to you, God? You're the one with your hand off. Get your hand off their asses. <laughs> All right. So uh, what we're going to do basically is cover the um, mountains of archaeological evidence that yes. uh, support the treatment of Exodus in the Bible. Yes. In, in fact, uh, well, um, there is no evidence. So thank you for joining That's us. That's it. This podcast. We'll see you guys next week. Uh, have a good one. Bye. <laughs> Now we joke about this, but this is absolutely true. There is no evidence corresponding this. Yeah, let's go over uh, some of the numbers so far, right? Egypt um, had apparently enslaved uh, the Jews who were uh, move, apparently settled in the time of Joseph, right? Yes. Um, and they were in Egypt for about 400 plus years, 430. A pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph Apparently this is Ramses. Typically people think that it's Ramses of the Bible, and there are a couple reasons for it. One is that... Uh, the cities, yeah. He built those cities in the Bible, and uh, it's because they were named in the Bible. Yeah, the, the name of the cities that the Hebrews were building with brick uh, were Ramses and Pitun. Um, now there are a lot of Ramses, you know, there are a lot of pharaohs named Ramses, um, but Ramses and Petun, those two cities were built during Ramses the Great's uh, reign, 67 years. Now, you and I will actually dispute this because when we get to discussing Jericho, in fact, uh, I will bring up that some people are arguing that it was actually Tutmosis III. Hey, okay, don't shoot your wad yet. Let's talk about that later. I, that's what I said. Hold uh, on to it. Hold on. My penis is still doubling in size. Of... It isn't quite large enough to shoot anything yet. Uh, is it large enough to see yet? No, no, I, I still have to search for it with a pair of tweezers and a magnifying glass. So we have no evidence the curse is working so far. Yeah, yeah, uh, keep trying, guys. I, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, it's commonly accepted that it's Ramses, um, and uh, so that would place it about 400 years. Uh, the population of Egypt was about a million at the time. Yeah, a bit over roughly a million the Bible says that the Jews who were enslaved, the Hebrews, were um, numbered 600,000. That's only the men. 600,000 men. So this doesn't count women and children. So during the um, time of their wandering, biblical scholars, I'm going to put that in quotes, 
um, placed their numbers around two and a half to three million. So apparently, the population of Egypt of a million was all Hebrew, and it was miscounted because it's actually twice that much. And so apparently, I don't know, about um, a dozen Egyptians kicked the uh, <laughs> Hebrews out of Egypt, thereby sucking out the entire population of Egypt. Now, they wandered around for 40 years. They yeah. made camps. They sacrificed animals. They built altars. In a hundred... The Ten Commandments, I mean. Right. In a hundred years of digging and searching, and they know the area that these guys uh, settled around and wandered around. Yeah. Uh, in a hundred years of archaeology, no evidence was found of any Hebrew encampment at all. Uh, interestingly enough, and you know, they'll argue, well, you haven't looked a whole lot, right? Well, pff, 100 years. Um, but they have unearthed a uh, papyrus that says, we, we've noticed two runaway slaves in this area at around the time where the exodus was supposed to happen. So apparently, people noticed two runaway slaves, but not three million people. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes sense to me, because if there were three million people, I mean... Uh... It would just be like, oh wait, another wandering army. Let's let's hide from them. But two, yeah. Whoa, now you got to put a stop to two slaves. Oh, right? Can you imagine the reward on three million uh, runaway slaves? <laughs> I know I'd be a bounty hunter at that time, dragging them back little by little. <laughs> so that's the story, and then and then you know they um, get to the promised land, and uh, under Joshua they go and they uh, utterly destroy all of these Canaanite cities such as Jericho and the city of Ai and the city of Hatsor. And uh, I think there are 28 others. There are like a total of 31 cities that these um, Hebrews, with the power of God, completely stormed over and destroyed. And once again, God is an asshole. And these people are following an asshole, which means that's the reason why they're walking around just slaughtering cities. Well, hey, yeah. Another city, let's get it. This is under the command of God, remember? He says... You need to um, take no prisoners. You need to destroy men, women, and children. Utterly lay them waste. This is a command of genocide. The only reason it's uh, acceptable is that apparently it comes from the almighty, uh, completely good, wonderful, all-knowing uh, creator of the universe. Well, it makes, makes perfect sense to me because we all know that small children are sinners, and so we might as well just lay them to waste. Yeah, God raised up these small children, apparently. He allowed them to be born, live to the ripe old age of two or three, just so that the Hebrews coming in can cut their throats. Now, how's that for your mortal probation? You come down here in order to learn about God and try to get back to heaven, and God kills you when you're two. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> you're up there in the pre-existence, according to Mormons, waiting to be sent down. <laughs> this is your one shot at getting to one of the three heavens, and uh, you get there, you're born, you're barely able to walk, and a bunch of Hebrews come and cut your throat. Well, I mean, uh, even under Catholicism, I mean, seriously, how are you supposed to return to God if you're killed before you can even start worshiping God? Yeah, this has always bothered me. Even as a kid, I thought, why doesn't he just send them prophets or raise up prophets? Or, you know, why does he have to kill them? Yeah. Why does he even allow them to enter into the promised land? Why doesn't he just cast a spell on them and make the, these people so that they can't see the promised land. Why didn't he hide it away like he did uh, <laughs> the Americas? <laughs> well, of course. I mean, well, think of the Garden of Eden. I mean, uh, Adam and Eve uh, screwed up, and so he threw them out of the Garden of Eden and hid it from everybody. 
right? Which I think Joseph Smith uh, located that in the United States. I think it was in Missouri. Was the Garden of Eden? Yeah, I remember that. How uh, how crazy is that? <laughs> All right, so that's that's basically the story. So that's the story that we get for the Bible. The question is. What archaeological evidence do we have to support that? Um, so let's go through some of the stuff that we found. Um, well, before we get into that, I just want to bring up this, this one article I came across. And I want to read this just because it, it's hilarious to me. It says, A new wave of scholars is now dogmatically declaring that the Exodus never took place. They insist it's just a myth concocted centuries later in the time of Josiah to justify the existence of a Jewish state from of or excuse some of these new skeptics, such as Zeev Herzog and Israel the First Finkelstein of Tel Aviv University, are Jewish themselves. Now, hang on a second. Can you really take someone named Herzog and Finkelstein seriously? I can if they're Jewish and they're in the middle of Israel from the Tel Aviv University and they're coming out and saying, you know what, there's just no archaeological evidence. <laughs> I mean, we're talking... This is Israel. People are fighting tooth and nail for this plot of land. And these two archaeologists come out and they're just like, you know, uh, we're sorry. I mean, th these, I looked up their, uh, their actual uh, titles. One is the Professor of Archaeology of Israel in the Bronze Age and Iron Ages at Tel Aviv University. And Herzog specializes in social archaeology, ancient architecture, and field archaeology for the Tel Aviv University, and both of them are coming out right and saying, you know what, there's just nothing. The Bible should be read as a myth, as just fables to learn stories from and learn uh, ethics from. I think it's come to the point, really, that the lack of evidence isn't just a, a matter of not searching hard enough. It is a matter of it didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, even Herzog comes forward and says, you know, the Exodus never happened, the Ten Commandments weren't given, Joshua never conquered the land of Israel. He even goes so far as to say King David probably uh, didn't exist unless he was nothing more than a tribal chieftain, and that King Solomon was probably the same, at best a tribal chieftain. So, I mean, I like these guys. They're finally throwing up their hands saying, you know, we have searched for hundreds of years and we haven't been able to find anything, so what does that lead you to conclude? Keep in mind that Jesus um, himself affirmed the Exodus. In John six forty nine through 51, he says, Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. So there we have Christ saying, uh, yeah, the Exodus did happen, by the way. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Actually, uh, the, the guy who was putting down Herzog and Finkelstein... Were, was even pointing that out, saying, you know what, if they are saying this, and the implications are that basically we have all been, uh, you know, worshipping something that is nothing more than a fable or a myth. And he was actually very upset about it. I, I found it completely hilarious that he was upset. Oh, yeah. Um, when I was doing a bunch of searching on, you know, from both sides, I ran into a bunch of Christian sites. Um, it's very difficult to look up, you know, Exodus archaeological evidence and not run into a bunch of crappy Christian sites. Oh, yeah. It's, um, it's, it's just a deluge of them. You get like 10,000 sites with maybe one having good evidence for it. Yeah. One, one of the um, sites is called the Exodus Controversy. And here's what they say. Jesus staked his reputation, authority, and credibility on the Exodus account's reliability. 
on his confidence that the Israelites actually did eat manna in the desert as the scriptures describe. If this account were not true, then Jesus was wrong, and so are some of his teachings. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. maybe, uh, Maybe Jesus put his money on the wrong horse here. Exactly right. But what I was struck also by, not only that, but how similar... Uh, the arguments are between uh, these people who have no evidence for uh, the events of the Bible and the Mormons who have no evidence for the events in the Book of Mormon. <laughs> the arguments are exactly the same. You're exactly right. I mean, how many times have you and I discussed the emails we get from our parents where they're like, "Ooh, ooh, look here! This proves that uh, that the Mormon, or excuse me, that uh, the ancient people that Joseph Smith talked about." was in South America. Look at this, look at this. Right. They'll grab any shred of whatever, completely forgetting the fact that the, if events happened as the, described in the Book of Mormon, you, should be, you shouldn't be able to walk three feet without tripping over a, a sword or a chariot from this age. Yeah, Millions of people battled. Millions! We have evidence from the Battle of Thermopylae, which was no more than a couple thousand people battling each other. We have evidence for that. We have no evidence of this massive million people, multi-million people engaged in battle with steel and armor and chariots. Unbelievable. All right, but let's... Bring up the Battle of Thermopylae, and that was before the supposed landing of uh, these people out of Israel onto the American continent. So how is it we can find archaeological evidence for that, which was before, predated it, and yet we can't find anything... Right. Or anybody landing over here. It was before much of it. Um, Battle of Thermopylae was, oh God, 470, 480? Yeah. 480 BC, I think it was. They landed, in quotes, according to the Book of Mormon, in 600 BC. Oh, that's where I was mistaken. I thought they landed about 400 BC. So that's about 110 years. But the major, vast majority of the Book of Mormon is after that. Um, with yeah. the single exception of the book of Ether, where they have the Jaredites who, again, they, they came right over from when the languages were scattered at the uh, <laughs> Tower of Babel. Again, again, total mythology. I don't know anyone, any rational being with uh, an IQ over 100 who doesn't have anything invested in this stuff, who believes that that was actual history, that, that our languages actually came from God smiting people who are building a tower to find him. And then, and then suddenly, they can't talk to each other. Suddenly, uh, a group of them are speaking Chinese. Another group is speaking <laughs> English. Another, you know, it's Russian. I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, that's where we got our languages from, from right? I mean, right. I mean, it's not that it, we just took hundreds of thousands of years to develop our languages and writing skills. Right. Linguistics clearly points back to one event where immediately all the languages were separate. They didn't derive from each other or, you know, be interspersed. It was some one event where all languages derived um, immediately from. Just like just like we have nothing in the strata, in the rock layers, nothing, 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 and then everything happens at once. Yeah. Man, dinosaurs, cattle, dragons, they're all there at once. <laughs> well, did you mention unicorns? Those are and my unicorns, yeah. Mine. Yeah, your brother actually told me the reason dragons and unicorns don't exist because they didn't make it out of the ark. That's because that's what my father told him. (laughs) So let me read you um, this, and and I want you in your head to um, switch out the word Exodus for Book of Mormon. All right? Okay. I'm doing it. Many critics who doubt the historicity of the Exodus share a problem. Over-reliance on what 
archaeology can prove. Archaeology is, in fact, a limited and imperfect area of study in which the interpretation of findings, as archaeologists readily admit, is more of an art than a hard science. That is the exact same thing. I've almost heard that verbatim from Mormons. Oh, very much so. In fact, I remember as a child hearing that only 5% of the Earth's surface had even been uh, researched through archaeology, and this is the reason why there was no evidence found for the Book of Mormon yet. I'd be amazed if 5% of the Earth's surface were, were even uh, lived on. I mean, <laughs> you're ta if you're including the ocean in that 5% of the world's surface, that's uh, one foot out of 20. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, and yet, we are still able to find out about Troy, which was yeah. written in the Iliad. Right. We'll get into that later. You know, um, let me go on with this. But but isn't that exactly the same? You know, the Mormons will say, and notice how it's switched over, how now somehow we're doubting the historicity as if there's no reason. <laughs> These guys are totally reasonable in believing it, but we're doubting it. It's like the evolution deniers or, or you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Well, I mean, and the arguments against it are just imbecilic. Oh, you know, it's a soft science. There's no real science. Well, here, here it is. He gives five reasons. Uh, which he says are the limits of science. One, little of what was made or written in antiquity survives to this day. <laughs> Obviously, he's not talking about Egypt. Yeah. Two, few of the ancient sites have been surveyed and a number have not even been found. Three, probably fewer than 2% of the known sites have been meaningfully excavated. Four, few of these have been more than scratched. What? He's talking about the ones that have been meaningfully excavated, and now he's saying that they haven't been scratched. I don't know what the hell... Five, only a fraction of the fraction that have been excavated have been published in data made available to the scholarly world. And then he moves on to say uh, what he really means, which is these guys have a bias against the Bible. <laughs> I love this. According to the Los Angeles Times article, most archaeologists do not believe the Bible, biblical exodus occurred. That most archaeologists conclude from the alleged lack of archaeological evidence that Jews were never slaves in Egypt and the exodus to Canaan never took place, tells us something about these individuals, but nothing about the Bible or the exodus. Well, that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, uh, why would you even question the, uh, the individual or uh, the Bible? I mean, why would you question the Bible? It's all about the individual and what they are seeing. as Right. You have two Jews in Israel telling you, stop it, <laughs> there is no evidence. And apparently that just tells us, and these guys are expert archaeologists, and apparently that tells us more about them, those disbelieving Jews, than about the Bible or the Exodus. Well, see, I mean, that's the crazy thing about this, is these guys, I mean, I've looked into their backgrounds. They have gone out, they have done multiple digs over and over and over again, looking to prove the Bible, and yet they're the ones who are coming back and stating outright, you know what, oh, we can't find anything. Yeah, that single shred of it. Now here's the problem, and it's the same problem that the Mormons share with the Book of Mormon. It's not that there's no evidence. It's that the what little evidence we have contradicts it. It's not yes. neutral. The evidence flatly contradicts the account. Um, so we can't talk about finding it, not finding it. We can't talk about hypothetical evidence. We have to talk about the evidence that we have now. And the evidence on the table now flatly contradicts it. So... Let's go over what we have. All right, hit me. The first mention of Israel as a country uh, occurs in the Merneptah Stella. Now, stellas are these round top 
um, victory statements. They're like the billboards of ancient Egypt. They they would you know you come across a stella and you'd read it and it would say how wonderful these pharaohs were right. Yeah, anybody of consequence had their own stella, just proclaiming what their deeds were. Right. This was how you did it. That's where we get the tombstones from, by the way. Is these stella? That's why they're round on the top. Anyway, Merneptah was the son of Ramses the Great. Ramses the Great reigned for sixty-seven years. He had dozens of offspring, uh, outlived a lot of them. And we get down to, I think, with the 13th son, you know, the, the, the son who actually survived long enough <laughs> to outlive his father. Uh, and his name was Merneptah. Um, and in the fifth year of his reign, he had this Merneptah Stella. Down in there, it says stuff like, is, is all this stuff that he, he did a, um, a campaign in Canaan. So he talks about how, you know, Ashkelon is um, laid waste and Gezer is uh, barren, utterly barren. And he says, Israel has been shorn. Its seed no longer exists. This is in 1208 B.C. Yeah. So this is the first mention we have of Israel as a country. So it, clearly, they must have exodized before 1208 B.C. Well, it they must would have to. Otherwise, uh, why would he be bringing this up? Right. Uh, yeah. So. so if you backtrack, you know, they were wandering in the wilderness, according to the Bible, for about 40 years. If you backtrack, there's only one pharaoh, and that's Ramses. So if... Um, if, if you think that, uh, oh, and um, by the way, actually, there is one bit of evidence on that Stella. All the other countries that he mentions, he puts, um, the in Egypt, you have um, like these little identifiers. After the country, instead of it being a proper name or the name of, uh, I don't know, a building or whatever, you put little hills. There are like three hills after them, you know, because foreign countries have a lot of hills. <laughs> so that's the... It's That's, not like Egypt, where everything is just kind of handed to them and everything's nice. Right. They're just a bunch of hills. So after these countries, they'd put the sign for foreign country, which is a bunch of hills. After Israel, there's not a bunch of hills. There's a man and a woman. It looks like they're, they haven't actually settled down. So they, they're probably still wandering at this point. If that's the case, God allowed them to beat the crap out of <laughs> to get the crap beaten out of them. <laughs> Well, maybe the Exodus and, and them talking about how they were defeating all of these cities was much like Egypt, wherein right. they would only quote their successes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trust us. We didn't get the crap beat out of us, children. Uh, <laughs> we actually beat the crap out of them. Jericho over there. Look, look. So this seems to be, it seems to match up anyway with the uh, Bible account of Ramses being the pharaoh, which they never mention him, but those two cities pinpointed as Ramses, them wandering afterwards. So if that's the case, Ramses was the pharaoh during the Exodus, and a small number of slaves either escaped or were kicked out uh, or left, and um, Merneptah, Ramses' son, beat the crap out of them. Yeah. Well, see, the problem with that, though, is the cities that they conquered, which I'm sure we're going to be going into right next. We will go into that now. After they've gotten out... They conquered a bunch of cities. Uh, three of them are uh, the city of Ai, the city of Jericho, and the city of Hatsor. The city of Ai, unfortunately, by archaeological evidence and dating, was destroyed somewhere around 2200 BC. If the Exodus, you know, the upper limit of Exodus is 1275, which is when Ramses began his reign. Yeah. And then the lower limit has to be the Merneptah Stella, which was in 1208. So about a thousand years before the city of I was destroyed. <laughs> well, see, this is what I love. This is an exact quote from uh, 
from Herzog, who, as, as I stated before, actually went out there and did his best to find this. And it, it, his exact quote is, During the period when the conquest would have taken place, there were no cities there, and of course, no walls to bring down. So there weren't even cities there for these people to conquer. They were probably just walking by the ruins and go, hey, oh hey, yeah, we did that. Well, sure, yeah. During the time of the Exodus, so before 1200 BC, there were approximately 25 settlements. The population, total population is between about three and 5,000. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there wasn't much to conquer there. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit later. You know, there was a decline, 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 and then um, uh, then an upswelling of the population. But moving on to Jericho, there were no walls. Um, Jericho was destroyed somewhere around 1500 B.C., so about 300 years before the Exodus could possibly have happened. All right, now, now that we've brought up Jericho, I'm actually going to point out that because of that dating system, uh, there are people out there who are saying, oh, wait, it was Tutmosis III that was the pharaoh during the Exodus. Oh, because I got you, because he was reigning around the 1500s. Exactly. And not only that, but uh, one site even claims, uh, I'm going to read this, it, it's absolutely great to me. It says, their fascinating scenario, talking about Hatshepsut, Tutmosis III, Amenhotep II, and uh, basically says, their fascinating scenario first or fits the dates of 1450 B.C. as the year of the exodus of the Jews from Egypt, coinciding with the death of Tutmosis III, presumably by drowning. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah, now, uh, anybody who does any research into Tutmosis III will find out that his death is actually, no one knows why he died. There is, it's unspecified. No one knows. So the other great thing is then uh, this other guy who is uh, fighting against Muslims, stating that this is Muslim propaganda versus Moses. And he actually states that the Egyptian pharaoh, Tutmosis III, dies in the Exodus in the year 1495 B.C. And uh, the reason why they're doing that is they're stating that the 1500 B.C., for Jericho is actually plus or minus 40 years, which puts it closer to Tutmosis III. However, if any of them looked into the dates of Tutmosis' reign, they would find out that he actually reigned from 1479 B.C. to 1425. So right. he didn't die by drowning. So, yeah, the Exodus occurred during his reign. Uh, see, the, the problem either way, in order to believe the Bible, you have to disbelieve the Bible. In order to put Tutmosis as the Pharaoh, you have to disbelieve this, that they were building the cities Ramses and Patun, which didn't exist until 300 years later. Exactly. In order to believe Ramses, which, by the way, his oldest son did die about 20 years into his reign. Oh yeah, it was very hard on him because then his wife died soon thereafter. Right, totally changed him. You know, Before then he was cruising out, battling, he had the Battle of Kadesh, uh, which he, he loved. There's so many representations of this battle. It's uh, fantastic. We, you know, there's First thing like that battle myself. It's just great. So much information. We even know the name of his horses. <laughs> it's awesome. After that, he, he turned more to diplomacy. Um, he became friends with the Hittites instead of their enemies. It totally changed him. But if you believe that Ramses was the pharaoh, you have to disbelieve where they said that the pharaoh and his army died and drowned in the sea. So... 
you got a problem either way. Anyway, the city of Hatsor is the third one that they mention. Um, that was destroyed in about 1250 BC, so that that's around the time. But you have to uh, you have to understand during these archaeological digs, typically when a, a city invades another one and, and it's destroyed by battle, you'll find weapons. You don't. You don't find any weapons at all in the dig of Hatsor. You find um, two interesting things. One, uh, fire. The city of Hatsor was laid out so that up on the hill you have uh, uh, where the nobility is. They've separated themselves off, and they're the ruling class, and then down below, surrounded almost, almost entirely on three sides, you have uh, the serfs and the slaves and the poorer people. So um, what you have is is the the top area was burned, and interesting enough, they have unearthed statuette, a little figurine of the king, and his head and his hands were cut off. Well, obviously, he was stealing from the lower class. That's why you chop hands off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right? They were yeah. So a couple things: if this were invaded, you'd you'd have to find weapons, some broken weapons, armor, something. Somebody would have died here, right? Um, so anyway, otherwise, what's the point in raiding? Right. <laughs> uh, and number two, why would the Israelites chop off the head and the hands of the king? That seems to me to uh, indicate anger, specifically directed toward the king. Yeah. Now I, I can actually see people who believe in the Bible coming back and saying, "Well, they were angry at this uh, at this king because uh, obviously he was going against God, which is why." You were sent in there to uh, to demolish the place. So I can see people arguing that, but it just doesn't make sense. Um, I agree that you would demolish the place, but that's a specific form of demolishment, right? Yeah. You're not uh, just destroying the statue. You're not stepping on it. You are cutting off the head and cutting off the hands. That is very specific. That seems to me that you're angry against the king. And there is evidence of an uprising, right? If you look at the pottery before about 1200 B.C., the pottery is very ornate, very well-crafted, uh, ornately decorated, very elegant, very complicated. After 1200, it becomes very simple. Yeah. It, it, utilitarian would be my way of putting it. It's just, it's mostly about the youth, it's not about the beauty of it. And keep in mind the history of other places. Uh, in Greek cities, there's the Dark Ages happens around about 1200. We suddenly lose literacy and uh, we don't know what's happening during these times. There is massive evidence of uh, fires burning down a whole lot of cities during this time. Yeah, We actually have writings that um, some mysterious sea people were invading across this entire area. So probably burning, pillaging, and you know, looting and bringing back stuff at that point. And once again, there is evidence for that. Where's the evidence uh, otherwise? Sure. So... Again, uh, you have uh, what seems to be happening here is not that a group is coming from the outside and attacking and plundering, but probably an upswelling, an uprising, a revolution. In the Bible, it does say that the Canaanites were the ruling class, were uh, burdening the people they ruled over with high taxes. That may have a kernel of truth. That would say uh, to me that the serfs rose up against their leaders, utterly destroyed them, moved away from the central valleys and into the hills where you have this, this simple pottery. Because why else would they degrade the statue in such a manner unless they were just absolutely pissed off and believing that their ruler 
was stopping them from providing a livelihood for themselves and their families. It makes perfect sense. Right. That would explain the anger. So what you have, uh, and before that even, you have um, decline. You have the pottery actually getting less ornate. You have rocks that aren't being repaired, buildings that are falling into disrepair. So you have a steady decline, 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 and then destruction. And, you know, as you're declining, your first instinct as a ruler would be to increase the taxes, right? So you can afford to repair your palaces. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it all makes sense. It all falls into place. So you have this decline, decline, decline. And then when it's replaced by new people, right? When you have the, the, the burning and then new houses go up, the houses are different. The houses are the same type of houses that you find in later Israelite settlements. But the pottery is the same, right? The same type of pottery. It's just simpler. The same type of culture. The same type of figurines. The same gods and goddesses are worshipped. There's a fertility goddess that's before and after. So the only that's difference... The one with the, the lady holding her boobs. Yeah, these boobs are so big that she has to support them with her hands. So the only difference, really, it's not a new cultural group. The only difference is the type of houses. And those houses are more similar to the serfs than they are to the ruling houses. They're simple. Yeah, which, which kind of tells you that a people came in uh, and started building up, but the same people were still there. The, right. The people who lived after, their culture was the same. They had different types of houses um, because now they're not um, crowded in and now they're not uh, being ruled and, and um, lorded over by anyone else. They build kind of more like a egalitarian society where these houses are... are um, housing uh, a bunch of different people, but there's no hierarchy between them. Yeah, yeah it's all the same, and the pottery, I, I love the pottery. I mean, that, that is just something that just astounds me, is it becomes less ornate and more utilitarian, which tells you that, I mean, this is just the serf class. I mean, no right. one is rising up to lead them. Well, the evidence points toward a movement of people, right, away from the cities and into more a rural group, but it doesn't point to an invasion. It points more toward a cultural revolution. Yeah. yeah well, I guess that's too bad for the Bible because that's just one more notch against it. <laughs> right. So people are, are heading to the hills. Um, <laughs> they're moving away from the cities. And they may have, actually, if there was an invasion, those people didn't stay there. They plundered and left. So they may have moved to the hills to escape these people, right? The only people who are invested in living there are the people who are ruling. So, so it's it's possible either way. Either way, it seems like the um, Israelites are actually the result of a Canaanite collapse and not the cause of it, which points then to the, the fact that maybe Israel uh, emerged out of the ashes of Canaanite civilization. They didn't come in. They, they actually became... Uh, a separate group after Canaan collapsed, and this new group has an identity that we're egalitarian. We, we have escaped this rule. We don't want to reimpose that. We've escaped it. We, we can all kind of be equal and share in this group identity of escaped slaves. Yeah, well, see, and that actually makes more sense than what the Bible is trying to tell us. And with a people like that, they're going to want a strong history behind them. So, of course, they're going to come up with these things. And you can kind of see how this destruction of Hatsor or, you know, the other cities in there, where people rose up, threw off uh, their yoke, and uh, were not slaves anymore, grows in the telling, and it becomes, it wasn't the Canaanites or the, our local leaders who were our masters, but it was the greatest civilization of our time. It was Egypt. And our God threw off those masters 
and we are free from them. Yeah. Now, the question then arises, where does Yahweh come from? Yahweh was not a god of Canaanite. There's no Canaanite um, carvings or stones or, or figurines uh, that are matched to the, the word Yahweh. Yeah, now this is actually very fascinating. We have to go back to Egypt, actually, to find out clues to where this Yahweh comes from. Which I love. So basically we have Egypt that supposedly is leaving no evidence whatsoever behind about the Exodus, and yet we have to go back to them to find out where Yahweh comes from. On the walls of Karnak Temple, this was uh, raised by Seti I, who was the father of Ramses the Great. So we're going back to Merneptah's grandfather now. He um, carves his um, victory. Uh, instead of a stella, it's an entire wall. <laughs> so he carves his victory over the Shazu, people who lived in southern Canaan. This would be modern-day Israel and Jordan. Egypt gives one of the names, um, one of the place names that, that he conquered as YHW, which in Egypt would be pronounced uh, Yahoo. <laughs> Um, this place uh, was referred to as Midian, interestingly enough, which is where Moses again first encountered Yahweh as the burning bush. This is in Exodus 3, 5, and 15. So, given that information, the fact that um, the Bible gives us uh, the first mention, really, of Yahweh, the first embodiment of Yahweh as, as the burning bush in Midian, where Moses was, in this Canaanite city, it kind of, a theory starts to emerge. Now, a group of slaves, um, certainly way back in, in the 1500s, uh, or maybe even earlier, uh, we're talking probably 17th dynasty, was the Hyksos, which were a Semitic culture. These, um, the word term Hyksos means foreign rulers. Um, and the representations of them, they got little beards, uh, they're um, Semitic. They're the same representations later on that we get for Semitic tribes. These are Semitic rulers who had established themselves in the Delta and were encroached in there. Um, <clears throat> you can find, it's very difficult to dig uh, and do excavations in the Delta because it's, uh, the water table is really high. So you have to actually pump out water to dig stuff up. Even as difficult as it was, we have murals, frescoes from this time. Amazing. Yeah, see, that's always amazed me, is you were in the wettest part of Egypt, and yet these things are still surviving. Yeah, yeah, they're unearthing this stuff. So we have um, scarabs by the Hyksos, which, you know, typically with a scarab, you have that flat part in the back, you know, the end of the beetle, where you'd write something on them, and it'd say, like, may Ray bless you, or whatever, you know, may you be under the, the protection of Osiris or Isis. Um, yeah. They didn't have writing, so they, they, they may well have been illiterate. They had geometric patterns like squirrel, you know, squiggles and squirrels and uh, that sort of thing. You gotta love that, that these Hyksos come in <clears> and <throat> take over Egypt and they can't even write. And Egypt's like, well, we've been writing for thousands of years. Right. At <laughs> this time, 1,500 years. But they're, they're entrenched in there. And they were only expelled by one of the Hyksos kings sends a letter to one of the princes in Thebes because the Hyksos never went down south. They, they were content up north. They, they sailed over. Um, there are uh, Hyksos jars uh, with their little cartouche in Minoan Crete, which was a civilization you know, across the Aegean at the time. Yeah. Um, so they sailed, but they didn't really move down. Um, so he sends a letter to one of the Theban princes, and he says, Your hippopotami are waking me up. <laughs> 
And this was I love that letter. This was really inflammatory. This pissed them off because they're you know like 500 miles away. He's telling them, "Would you quiet your hippopotami?" So one of the king, one of the Theban princes, gathers an army, marches up, and he's actually um, uh, defeated. He has multiple head wounds, like his forehead's caved in. He has spears behind his uh, ears. Um, so they actually, we have his mummy. They took him back, marched all the way back, mummified him. Um, it's not very well preserved because they had to do it, you know, what they could in the battlefield. But we have his mummy. Listen, you know, I would die for my hippopotami too. Let them make their noise. <laughs> he must have had a very close relationship with this hippopotamus. <laughs> Maybe a little too close. <laughs> so his sons march up there. One of them gets killed. The other one conquers, and he becomes the first king, the first pharaoh of the 18th dynasty. He is Amos I. So the Hyksos are expelled. And again, you know, I used to think maybe that uh, Egypt didn't record these things because they they have very propaganda, right? That they, they don't record defeats. I don't. This is the funny thing is you and I have had many, many arguments over yeah. this because I kept pointing out that during the intermediary period, which is when Egypt was in major decline and there's very few records, there are lamentations where the Egyptian royalty was writing down, you know, everything's backwards, everything's unhappy, so on and so forth. Sure, but you so don't have forth. you don't have pharaohs ever saying, I got beat up by Canaan or I got beat up by Greece or whatever. You never have them saying that. They don't record the, the failures. However, what they do is they record victories just closer and closer to home as <laughs> they're retreating. Yeah, victories in retreat is the way I like it. Now, if you look at the Exodus story, you have a group of Hebrews, blah, 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 talking to the Pharaoh, yeah, 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 let my people go, and the end result is they leave. So you'd think if this actually happened, Egypt would say, I beat the shit out of the Hebrews, and they got out of here. They ran away with their tail between their legs. Exactly. That way, any time in the future, if these Hebrews came back, the Egyptians could say, hey, hold on a second, our pharaoh knocked you out of here. Right. That seems very Egyptian. What doesn't seem Egyptian is to just to clam up about it and not say anything. They turn their defeats into victories, right? Yeah. They don't care if it's a lie. <laughs> it's written down. <laughs> so anyway. We're talking 600,000 men right. marching out of Egypt. Right. There would definitely be somebody saying, oh, well, you know, we were such small in numbers, we threw them out. Right, clearly not possible. It may have been 600, maybe 60. Anyway, yeah. these Hyksos were expelled. In probably 1600s, 1500s BC, they were, they were expelled. They then kind of settle into Canaan, and you can see that there's kind of a memory of this stuff happening, and it comes out during the Exodus. And actually, there are a lot of parts in Exodus that I think require a... a um, intense familiarity with Egypt. For for example, he says, the pharaoh of the time says to his midwives, I want you to kill all of the um, sons, right, of the Hebrews. They're getting too numerous. And he says, which is very Egyptian, watch the two stones. Because in Egypt, when they, they don't have, um, they don't give birth like we do, right? We put the lady up in a bed, throw her legs up, and she uh, squirts the kid out. Yeah. In Egypt, much smarter, they would have two stones, and the lady would crouch between these two stones, and the baby would come out. You'd have gravity to assist you. I can tell you from personal experience, because I've delivered a baby like this. Um, you almost dropped one. 
It's very difficult. You almost have to have a catcher's mitt to grab this baby. Um, but it's easier for the mother to do it because gravity's pulling the kid down. The only reason we have women giving birth on the bed is because it's easier for the doctor. <laughs> and it's probably it probably leads to less injuries for the kids too, but um, yeah, their heads can take it. They're all mushy anyway. <laughs> this is a detail that I think you'd have to live in Egypt for a long time in order to understand. Because yeah. that's very Egyptian. Anyway, there, there are these memories, right? So when they uh, rise up against their Canaanite masters who have overtaxed them, they, they think back to, to Egypt and say, you know, hey, we, we, we got away from Egypt, right? This great, our God is massively powerful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they allowed so few of us to escape. <laughs> <laughs> our God is so powerful that they overcame not the Canaanites. That comes later, you know, we defeat them. But the biggest thing was we defeated Egypt. We got the fair. We got the best of the pharaoh. Yeah. Now, see, that makes sense to me because when you look at even Greek culture, even they were going back to Egypt and saying, "You know what? I can trace my genealogy to Egyptian soil." So, right. I mean, Egypt was, I mean, the mother load of all mother loads. Sure. And when the Hyksos leave, they probably do the same thing Egypt does. They say they make up a story. <laughs> We defeated them. We defeated them. Right? We defeated them, and we came out. Maybe we were enslaved, you know, and we, we rose up and we defeated them. We came out and we settled here. Clearly, they would have to pass through Midian in order to get into Canaan. They would come across this, this uh, town called Yahoo, and they um, get these uh, ideas about this one god. Because the, the, um, the Hyksos, if they were Joseph or the remnants of Joseph or Hebrews, they didn't uh, worship Yahweh at this time because we have the fresco actually shows them worshiping Set, the evil god who hacked up uh, Osiris. I love that they chose Set. Isn't that great? Or however you want to say it. They, they chose him to worship. <laughs> He's just, it, they have pictures of this, you know, ram-headed god with a forked tail. I mean, this guy is Satan. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that that may be where they got their representation. Satan later on. It may well have been. It's very close. Anyway, they didn't have a concept of Yahweh this time. They certainly didn't worship Yahweh. And there are no, um, there are no writings because uh, the first evidence of a Hebrew alphabet is around the year 1000. Um, but you, all you have is these murals or these frescoes and, or figurines. Uh, <clears throat> and there, there's no evidence that Yahweh was worshipped before about uh, 1200 to 1000. So they pass through Midian. They get this uh, concept of Yahweh. That kind of resonates with them because that you know they've escaped with their lives, and when they eventually, when the Canaanite city collapses and this new uh, egalitarian society uh, emerges, they will have this memory of it. Now, this memory of Yahweh and this memory of perhaps uh, getting freed from Egypt because <laughs> they've just been freed from their Canaanite overlords. You know, I love this. This is the first time I've thought about this, but this is yet again something they've taken from Egypt, wherein they are having victories in retreat. <laughs> sure, and this is speculation, but it's speculation that fits the evidence, unlike the biblical story. Yeah. Uh, so they come up with this egalitarian God who helps them free themselves from uh, the, these horrible masters, and that becomes kind of the uniting force, uh, and, and that becomes their defining uh, ethnic story. Makes sense to me. <laughs> so that, like I said, there's no evidence for Exodus. Not you could argue... 
you could argue perhaps that the wandering is evidenced by the Merneptah Stella. Um, but again, we have no hard archaeological evidence. If they were wandering, there are no camps. There are no uh, sacrificial altars. There are no bones of people who died. And there were, again, two and a half to three million people who all died because they worshipped that calf, right? That golden calf. And so God made sure that they all died with the exception of Joshua and maybe one other person. So you should have three million corpses <laughs> around this forest. Unless, of course, uh, Joshua and that other person are the two slaves that they were talking about. Right! <laughs> the two runaway slaves. There were two people who got out. Oh, Lord. Talk about a story you'd be able to pass around if you were one of those slaves. Hey, guess what? Let's see this. Right. So, again, if people talk to you, you can laugh at them because 600,000 men and two and a half to three million, that's like two to three times the entire population of Egypt. Uh, if that were the case, Moses would have been Pharaoh. There's no way Egypt could have put off three million people who are living in the same place as, as them. Come on. And not only that, why would you ever leave Egypt if there were that many people? Egypt was sought after from Roman times, from everybody, Persia, because of the amount of grain that they could produce. Right, absolutely. Rome would have collapsed if they didn't have Egypt as a province. Rome needed Egypt in order to um, pay their troops and feed their people. Rome could not have done that by itself. No, no. So are you telling me that these two to three million Jews just kind of got up and left someplace where they knew that they were going to have food coming every year? Right. Archaeological evidence shows, like I said, there are about 25 settlements pre-1200. 200 years later, around the time of the um, biblical kingdom of David, the population's about 45,000. Now, that can't happen through just reproduction. That's, no. that's too great. Um, a bunch of rabbits. So probably people are shifting their population around. There probably is an influx of people um, from outside, not to the tune of 600,000. But, no, but, you know, maybe 6,000, maybe 600, we don't know. Yeah. But certainly yeah. There's, a, there's a population growth. Now, um, there is no archaeological evidence of King David either so far. Certainly no. not the, the massive walled cities that are described in the Bible. That comes later. The first, uh, I think, kings that we have, are like Jehu, I think, is mentioned. Um, they're, they're generations past. You know, as important as, as David and Solomon are in the Bible, as prominent as they are described, none of the other surrounding countries seem to have noticed them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you got to love that. They, they're so prominent that nobody even notices them. Unlike Egypt, where everybody noticed Egypt. Right, exactly. All right, so that pretty much wraps it up. Zero archaeological evidence. The archaeological evidence that does that we do have tends to uh, contradict the story. Not, it's not even neutral to it. It just it flatly contradicts it. Clearly, based on archaeological evidence, Exodus did not happen as it was described in the Bible. But uh, you even got two Jews in Israel who were saying, "You know what, guys, knock it off." There's right as usually happens. Um, the actual story is vastly more interesting than the one that's portrayed in the Bible. So what do we got on tap for next week? On tap for next week, we have the Salt City Skeptics. Uh, they have come, and uh, we did an interview, and we have found out which one of us is grading. Excellent. So we will uh, share that with you next week, and you'll find out whether it's me or Layton who's getting on our audience members' nerves. Obviously it's you. 
See you next week.